welcome to Coffee Talk at Godric's Hollow. Uh, this is our very first episode, so um, we're really excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Monica. Hi, I'm Anish. And we are cousins, uh, born about three months apart, mm-hmm. right? Just about. Yeah, yeah. And we are incredible, incredible Potter enthusiasts. <laughs> incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been fans of Harry Potter since about, around the same time we started, like when we were about nine or ten years old, so. And we wanted to start this podcast to kind of share, share our thoughts on, on everything. It won't, it won't be like the other ones out there that we, we respect quite a bit. Uh, I love Muggle Cast and listen to them all the time, but we're going to do a bit more of the a bit more thematic analysis, symbolic analysis, and connections to real-world yeah. experiences. In yeah. fact, we decided to do this podcast because we used to have these like epic conversations on the phone for hours about Harry Potter and talk about all the sort of complex ideas that J.K. Rowling you know, puts through in, in the books, and so we decided to share it with, you know, the world with the, with the world because and you know we're <laughs> and, and all of you listeners out there who hopefully are more than just our siblings that are listening. <laughs> yeah. But um, since our family is just as big as the Weasleys, if not if not twice as large or if not a hundred times as large. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's okay. It's okay if if a lot of you out there are our relatives. <laughs> But hopefully not too many. <laughs> or hopefully, well, okay. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. So what, what we want to do with this first podcast <laughs> is just give you a taste of the sort of things we're going to be talking about in the future. Just have a you know free fall conversation about you know like uh, feminism, family dynamics, uh, the nature of good versus evil, that sort of stuff. Those are things that we talk about all the time. So we thought we would start with that. But maybe a good place to start would be the family dynamics, um, because we're—I mean—we're obviously family. We grew up together. We yeah. We know what it's like to. I mean, I only have one older sister, but you have many. Um, I, yeah, three sisters. And just you know, living in a living in a big family that's deeply interconnected. Um, you know. A lot like makes us identify with different aspects of the Potter world, and one of the things that we we talked that we just actually recently kind of discovered about ourselves is we never really liked Ron that much. Don't don't get mad at us, but <laughs> but no, like right, like we never. It was kind of like Ron's this annoying guy. Like he has. So what if his friend is, you know, this famous kid, and. I think Ron has an inferiority complex because already he's, you know, I mean, he's sort of surrounded by people he thinks are better than he is. You know, I mean, his older two brothers who are, like, super cool, Bill and Charlie, Percy, who was, like, successful, a head boy, probably smart, probably did well in school. No, oh, Brandon yeah, George, no, Percy is, like, known totally, to be incredibly you know, intelligent. Yeah, they're, so. like, Fred and George are infamous for their troublemaking and then there's Ron, and there's Ginny, who's obviously the mother's favorite because she's the only girl. I mean, what's that in um, Deathly Hallows Part 1 when Ron has to destroy the locket? Like, um, oh, yeah, in the Lock- movie? Horcrux Hermione says, Horcrux you know, Hermione last so son to sexy. the mom only wanted a daughter. <laughs> Wait, what? I said Horcrux Hermione is so sexy. Oh, yeah, that's what I call her because she's, she's like my favorite character. I know, you like... Bring her up all the time. Like, Horcrux Hermione, that one scene when she's, like, green and gray. Um, (laughs) I mean, no, like, the, I mean, I had a crush on Daniel Radcliffe when I was 12 years old when the second movie came out. And, like, his voice had kind of dropped a couple octaves. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe, like, one and a half octaves. Whatever. (laughs) And I remember talking to you on AIM (laughs) and being like, oh, my, OMG, Daniel Radcliffe, like, Harry Potter is so cute. <laughs> I can just picture myself sitting there at the computer with my braces and my bangs, like typing this to you. 
Well, I mean, Emma Watson in Prison of Azkaban went from, like, between Chamber of Secrets and Prison of Azkaban, she went from, like, bushy-haired little girl to, like, total smoking hot. Smoking hot. Because <laughs> I, mean, I was also 13 then when we came out, so it didn't feel so weird. It just sounded just me. <laughs> yeah, we sound really odd. But, but I mean, this whole, the whole series is about people coming into their um, maturity yeah, yeah. And, and everything, but... Definitely, because we were talking about Ron earlier, and I feel like in the earlier books, he's more annoying than in the later books, when he sort of realizes his potential. You know, he... I mean, the fourth book is when he really annoys me the most, because when he has the big fight with Harry about fame. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I felt like as we get into the third book, he sort of realizes his his place within the trio and within his family also... You know, he's he's sort of the middle ground between like Fred and George troublemaking and like Percy perfection. He's he's a good guy. He's somewhat smart, I guess. Well, no, you said it yourself. Like he has a lot of potential. Um, yeah, he has a lot of potential. Right, and and, so. and I mean that's obviously something that Dumbledore saw, and um, and also something that it, you know he's just he's just yeah. I mean he's a good guy. Like he's a really good. Good guy, but he obviously had his his own setbacks and how he has to identify himself and how he fits into the trio because we had we had this um, you know when we were watching the first Deathly Hallows movie and he like gets up and, and leaves. I mean, obviously he does that in the books too, but um, you know you can see him deteriorating. Because, one, because of the Horcrux, but also even more so because he's thinking about his family, he's thinking about all these people that he cares about, and he wasn't able yeah. to just dissect himself away from that, just to, you know, take him, he can't, he can't take himself out of that, um, in the same way that Hermione could, or how... Well, I mean, Hermione, Hermione in Deadly House Part 1, I mean, is such a fascinating character, I mean, I know she's the same character she always was, and she, it's not that she changes at all. I mean, she does change, but not in, like, a weird way, in, like, a normal way. But her, like, the way she did, like, the memory-erasing curse on her parents, and then she has to do it again at the coffee shop to the Death Eaters. And that was always such a fascinating moment to me, because obviously the Death Eaters are evil, and she has to do it because she, she needs to save her life just because she had to do it on her parents to save their lives. But it's it's an interesting connection and in how you can definitely see it on Emma Watson's face, how it pains her to be doing this curse again, or maybe it doesn't pain her to do it again, but the memory of doing it the first time is, it's hard for her. And, and But she has to do it in order to separate herself from her family. And Harry technically doesn't have any family. I mean, I hate saying that because he does have family, but... It's not like he has to, it's not like he's listening to the radio like Ron is. And Ron has a really tough time of separating it's, himself. And I think that is a, it's. It's because it's, we it's, don't, we don't like Ron because we identify with him. We want right. to think that we'll be, we'll be Harry and we'll be Hermione and we'll follow the noble, the noble path. We'll have our, the right thing, no matter how we'll have our are. compasses set north and, and we'll follow it and. Yeah, we'll be yeah. these heroes and everything, but but we won't be because, like, if, if we're in the middle of the forest and there's a war going on, I'm going to be thinking about my family. I'm going to be thinking yeah. about are they safe? Are they yeah, okay? Yeah, what are, you know, I, and and I can't say that I wouldn't leave. You know, <laughs> it makes you wonder if what would have happened if he had heard you know Ginny's name on that radio because it would have pained him because you know obviously she's dead or missing, but then at least he would know what happened to her, you know, there's not, like, that uncertainty, I think, is killing him more. Right, not knowing, not knowing is, not knowing is always worse, is worse than than knowing, or, I mean, that's something we can, we can discuss, you know, what, what's it like to be in, in, you know, this, in moments of peril or in times of trouble. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you, you just touched on something which, which is actually which is really great. Um, the idea of memory, and we actually haven't talked about this before, but how important it is in the entire series. 
um, memory and time and how being able to capture memories is something that's so specific and interesting in the wizarding world. How, you know, you can pull your memories out of your head and save them. I want a pensieve I, so badly. I am one. I am a human pensieve. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know that. I don't, don't forget, forget anything ever about I do not forget anything. Kill. I will hold a grudge till the day I die. And <laughs> <laughs> I will remember every single word of various conversations. Um, but that, that's, that's what a memory is definitely necessary in Harry Potter because... There's so many times when people recall, like, specific what people say. Hermione can quote speeches from, like, the last summer before. Uh, I remember she did that, I think, at the, in Order of the Phoenix. She, like, quotes Dumbledore's speech about, like, school unity and stuff. And, <laughs> well, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that when... I mean, okay, Harry is a baby. He doesn't have any... Me- is a baby when his parents die. He doesn't have any memory of his parents. Right. Except his only memory of the night is that flash of green light. And then when he talks to, when he meets everybody else who, know, who knew his parents, all they say is, is things of, that they remember of his parents. You know, yeah. they don't, it's, it's him hearing, it's what, what do lawyers say? It's like hearsay. It's, it's like these memories, yeah, yeah. memories through another person. He has to build his memory of that night from other people, which is probably a very distressing notion for him. Right, and then in, and then the other aspect of memory is how they can be modified and changed. People just, people, you know, we, we know this, I mean, in work, people remember what they want to. And, yeah. And, I mean, in life, people remember what they want to. Are you referring to Slughorn? Yes, yeah, absolutely, and how he modifies it. In um, order to save his own skin, really. But even, because... yeah, I, I guess, yeah, part of it is to save himself, but even more so when... I mean, think about it. If you, if you helped somebody murder thousands of people, wouldn't you want for a level of self-preservation just in your own sanity? Wouldn't you kind of yeah. like think, oh, well, I never said anything that, that would have caused that or helped that? You know, you bring up an interesting point because all this time I was sort of thinking of it as Slughorn deliberately changing it so that he would he would distance himself from from that moment, but I never thought of it as the way you just mentioned it, of like, just distancing yourself, not only for, like, preservation from the outside world, but from your own guilt. Right, you because know, we're... I, I never thought of that before. We're our own worst. such a, like, slimy character. I, yeah, he's, he's slimy, <laughs> but he's also... <laughs> he's also just, um... You know, I, I don't think he has a family. I don't think he has... Like I see him as like a widower or wards or anything, but it's sort yeah. of—I mean, he's a—he's a collector. He collects yeah. people that are special and interesting. Um, but if you know one of the f- things that you collected turns out to be incredibly dangerous and evil, wouldn't you kind of think, you know, for your own self, wouldn't you sort of change that? And, and we all—I'm sure we all do that. Yeah. Do that yeah. to ourselves. We remember things differently that than other people do, <laughs> of right. course. Um, and Slughorn, I think, is an interesting character because he's not evil in the same sense that you know Bellatrix Lestrange is evil, but he's not good in the same sense that like McGonagall is good. He's fine. He's sort of like that middle ground where he's not really the most stand-up guy. Like I wouldn't really rely on him to, to, to like. Right. Right you know, stand up for me when I need it. No, and... But it's, he's not totally evil. Yeah, and... and I think he represents, like, a slew of characters. Well, he doesn't represent them, but he's part of them. Of characters who sort of fit into that weird middle ground where you sort of wonder where they were during the big Hogwarts battle. Like, were they fighting along with Dumbledore? I mean, not, not, not fighting with Dumbledore, but fighting for him? Mm-hmm. Or were they just sort of, like, hiding out? Just, yeah, this, um, these characters that we identify as being gray characters. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, what make, what made them so, what made them so gray? Um, yeah. <laughs> what made them so, gray makes it sound like they're dull and not interesting, but, but. Yeah, it's, but we mean gray. Opposite. Like, ambiguous. The whole Venn diagram and, of good Well, maybe not people. even, a, ambiguous is, is kind of a tough word. Yeah. <laughs> also, but, um. <laughs> And, you know, people, people like him that, that we kind of throw into that category are, 
you know, Narcissa Malfoy, who... Sybil Trelawney. Yes. <laughs> Trelawney, who, who's, um, who's portrayed as being such a flighty, nervous, scared woman. I always liked her description as very bug-like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. every time she's introduced in the books, you know, Harry mentions her, like, insect-like eyes. Like eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. And she's played to perfection by Emma Thompson. Who we love. Who, who you actually shared some really cool facts about her, which I didn't know. Um, like, she wrote... I didn't know that she wrote the screenplay for Sense and Sensibility. And, yeah, yeah. And, and Nanny and McPhee? Nanny McPhee, both Nanny That's McPhee. That's insane. Films. I cannot... I still... I cannot believe that. I just can't. Yeah, I no, she's, she's pretty amazing. And when I read Sybil Trelawney, I always thought of her. Actually. You did? Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, wait, before? Yeah. No. Well, I can't no. remember if I... I can't remember if I saw Sense Sensibility before I saw Harry Potter and the Northern Phoenix. But, or Harry Potter and the Prison of Azkaban. You know, I, I don't think that's true. I think I knew her from Harry Potter before I saw her or anything else. Yeah. I don't know. But she just seems perfect that it seems natural that I would have thought of her. Like... Like thinking back to who I was when I read *Prince of Azkaban*, I remember thinking, I could I could see myself if I had known Emma Thompson of thinking of her for the movie. It's just a I testament to yeah. the casting that yeah. these Potter films were able to. I also felt like all be. the cast, I mean, the entire cast was like totally perfect for each part. Yeah. <laughs> Especially uh, Imelda Staunton as Dolores Umbridge. <laughs> I, was, I thought that if any if any actor deserved an Oscar nomination, it should have been her. Been her. <laughs> Playing Umbridge, oh, the most evil character perhaps in in the Potter world, maybe I don't know. Definitely something yeah. something that we can have a debate about. Well, the whole Ministry of Magic, it's uh, the whole Ministry of Magic falls into that weird gray area because they're not bad because they're obviously on the good side. Well, they think they are. Mm-hmm. But they're direct antagonists to Harry and his goal. Especially, you know, in Order of the Phoenix. I mean, that's what I'm reading right now. So it's most fresh in my mind. Yeah, you're rereading the... Um, I'm rereading the series, and I'm on like, Order of the Phoenix again. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Remember like when, eight times. when I was a kid, um, and you know how there's like the really big gap between four and five? Yeah. In that gap, all I did was reread one through four, one through four, yeah, one yeah. through four. <laughs> and you had to because there was like a number of years. Between. No, but, I'm, but it's kind of like, I think I re- obviously read other stuff in between, but but that was <laughs> you like... You did some homework. I did some, I did some studying and whatever. Um, <laughs> but Well, um, I caught up, to, well, I read Harry Potter first in 2000, I think, or 1999. And I remember Goblet of Fire. Like, I read the first three books, and then Goblet of Fire came out not too long after that. So, like, I wasn't used to waiting for, like, the next book. But then I we had to wait, like, a, a year and a half or two years. Yeah, wasn't it? Or, or the wasn't it in the U.S.? Didn't two and three come out the same year? Or maybe that was in... I think that might have been remember. the whole world. I'm not sure. Because I bought all three at the same time. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, t- I told you my... Um, my... <laughs> My inability to understand numerical sequence. <laughs> I was ten years old. I read, I read the second book first because I didn't really get that it was like two, two comes, comes after, after one. one. And then um, the reason why is because at whatever school book fair, the the second book was in hardcover. Was that was you know still a hardcover, and the first one was yeah. a paperback. And I thought, well, I want the hardcover because. <laughs> I'm this materialistic fool. <laughs> well, I mean, 15 years later, you still have that same copy of the hardback. So yeah, yeah. And it's, the paperback and it's, still lasts as long. And it's actually... Um, no, the my hardcover has fallen apart. It's in oh, two, really? It's in two pieces, yeah. Oh. Um, from over-reading and over-use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so smart. I, I know that. Now I know that two comes after one. That's how I learned it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad you know it now. <laughs> Thanks. But, oh, well, speaking of Chamber of Secrets, it's, 
you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about is the presence of evil and yeah, yeah, and sort of you know how it changes, what it means, and and in you know, like in the first book, Voldemort is this head, this kind of entity that's attached to another person, and then in right. the second book, it's it's one of his horcruxes, of course, um, but. You know, how else is, is evil personified in the series? Peter yeah. Pettigrew? Peter Pettigrew, yeah, Peter Pettigrew is, well, Peter Pettigrew is one of those characters that that we could spend a couple episodes on, I yeah, think, yeah. because I think you, you told me that he's, um, he's the image of disloyalty. Yeah. And, um, but... But he's also incredibly loyal to the Dark Lord. But loyal out of what? Actual fealty? Uh, out of fear, yeah. Is, mm-hmm. it, is it like actual fealty or is it like fear? For, which I, I think applies to a lot of the Death Eaters, especially the second time around. You know, are they really loyal to Voldemort because they really believe in what he's doing? Are they just afraid of the consequences if they defy him? Right, and... I mean, so a couple of them are in Azkaban. We know that. Right. And I, I think those are the ones that are, like, truly into his, you know... Um, into into Voldemort's, like... Like, ideology. Um, yeah, yeah, well, and I think you say that because they... They're the ones who, in court... And we, we see a lot of these court scenes, and everybody who's on stand is absolutely crazy and is shown as being crazy and yeah um, including our favorite Bellatrix <laughs> love Bellatrix <laughs> um and they I mean they they have probably show the most loyalty to Voldemort mm-hmm. um because they're the ones who kind of confess to it right right they're the ones who whereas said people that. like Karkaroff are the ones saying they I mean they show remorse which is they show remorse, which is, I guess, good, because it shows they have some kind of morality. But then is that also remorse out of real regret, or is it remorse out of fear of being punished? I mean, who wants to go to Azkaban? I don't. <laughs> I don't either, I think. <laughs> well, okay, another, another personification of evil are the Dementors. Right. Which, you know, it's so... It's just so weird how... You know, in the wizard, in the wizarding world, there's these creatures that will suck all the joy out of you. Right? right? They'll suck out your will to live. <laughs> and literally your soul. Yeah, exactly. And that, um, if that isn't evil, then, then what? Then what is? Yeah, there. So I was. I did some research on Dementors. Uh, after last time we spoke. <laughs> okay. And according to Harry Potter Wiki, which I, I trust to be a very, you know, I trust it as much as I trust Wikipedia, which is yeah, 125%. But there's no way to actually destroy Dementors. I mean, the Patronus will weaken them and will send them away, but it won't actually, like, like there's no way to wipe out the Dementor race. Mm. You know what I, what I was thinking of? And I think I might have had a dream about this or something. And... Like how, who, like, wait, Mrs. Fig can't see Dementors, right? No, I think she can. Wait, she can see magic. them even though she doesn't have any magic in her? Right, because she, I, I thought that she could. Because she's, even though she's a squib, she can still, um, she still has magical blood in her. Okay, well, I think what... I think in the books it said that muggles can feel the presence of Dementors. Yeah, I can't remember if she, if she can see that. I don't know if it says. But I no. imagine that she could. So, well, okay, anyways. Muggles can feel the presence of Dementors, which means that they can right. feel this despair and, like, loss of hope and, like, whatever other... They remember all the terrible things <laughs> that happened to them. Um, yeah. And when, you know... How I'm trying to think of where Joe got the inspiration for having these these uh, creatures in the world, you know. 
Yeah. And uh, one thing I thought of was how, um, I think I thought of this after I watched like Percy Jackson and the, <laughs> the <laughs> Olympian Thief, how the story of Pandora is how she lets all these terrible things escape into the world. Right. And but how she, I mean, one of the stories is how she prevents the loss of hope from escaping and whatever. But, right. But she releases like famine and death and sadness and, and every, everything else bad. Um, just how it's these, these things in the air that will make you feel bad. <laughs> but those are, those are released. Well, one of the interesting things about J.K. Rowling is that she uses these mythological creatures that are, I mean, they're not real, but they're legends already, and she sort of makes a new twist on them. Like with the basilisk, for example, it's really just, I don't remember if it's a lizard or just a smaller snake, but it does have like the same like magical qualities that the Harry Potter basilisk does. Like if you do look at it, you will turn to stone, or you will die. If you see in the reflection, you'll you'll get turned to stone, which is I think is a reference to Medusa, also. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. she, I, th- I think she did invent the whole being scared of roosters. <laughs> thing, it's so random. But <laughs> well, I'm kind of scared of roosters because they're gigantic. <laughs> well, they're not gigantic, but they're like they're really like territorial and. They're territorial, and they can be really annoying. They can be really, yeah, really annoying. That's that's why I'm terrified. Yeah, um, terrified of annoyance. Um, but it made yeah. for a nice image of like Ginny waking up with like rooster feathers all over. Oh my her, gosh! Yeah. See? Where that came from? <laughs> and everyone and telling me about how Chamber Secrets really still scares you yes. because of the basilisk in the wall. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, aren't you scared of snakes and walls? I'm terrified of snakes and. I some, every now and then I have nightmares that I have snakes in my apartment. And and do you mind sharing with the public why why this is why you have such a fear? Because I know. <laughs> it's because there was this one episode <laughs> of Home Improvement where there's a snake in their walls, and at the end, in like the end credits when they usually do bloopers, it shows the snakes climbing out of the wall and onto Tim Allen's shoulder. <laughs> scene <laughs> and it like terrifies you but, but in chamber of secrets when the basilisk is going through the walls and saying things like let me rip tear kill you that still sends shivers down it's my so spine scary. it's still really scary chamber of secrets i think is really underrated because it is really terrifying i mean just thinking about the amount of dread and you know terror in, in that school you know, they really i mean people are getting touched by it there's a fear of death Everyone's sort of suspicious of everyone else, I mean, especially Harry. Um, and it's it's sort of funny about how they. Well, I, I sorry, I keep using the word funny, but I mean it's sort of funny and interesting are going to be highly repeated words in yes. in, in these podcasts. <laughs> but they have multiple multiple meanings. Yes. <laughs> but it's really significant how at the dueling club scene when Harry is finds out that he's, he can speak to snakes and how everyone thinks that he's sort of egging Justin, egging the snake to attack Justin when in reality he is, you know, shooing it away and telling him to go away. It sort of echoes the moments in Order of the Phoenix when nobody believes that the Dark Lord is back. But, I mean, the reader knows and those closest to Harry know that he's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this weird connection between the two moments when, you know, in Chamber of Secrets, everyone thinks that Harry is this, you know, evil, evil descendant of Salazar Slytherin. Mm-hmm. And in Order of the Phoenix, everyone thinks he's a total nutcase. Right. Yeah. It's just a good, a good study of, like, mob mentality or, like, mass hysteria, I think. Yeah, and, I mean, that's, you know... All these superhero movies and everything, it's all about these characters being simultaneously special and 
un, like unaccepted or not accepted. Yeah, um, Peter Parker and Bruce Wayne, yeah. And um, like everybody in X-Men. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bruce Banner, the Hulk, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's about how you're different, you have these powers, you decide to use them to help people, but they don't see it. They don't want to accept yeah, it. They don't see it mainly because they're not, they don't advertise their good deeds, which Harry doesn't either. So you have this sort of neat, like this small group of people who know how like great Harry is. And then you have all like the random Hogwarts students who don't see him save the Sorcerer's Stone. They don't see him destroy the Horcruxes. They don't see him you know, going through time and saving Buckbeak and Sirius. You know? So their only perception of Harry comes through external sources, like the Daily Prophet or whatever Dumbledore says. But then who says Dumbledore is a completely credible source either? You know? So it's, right. I've always sort of wondered about you know, life at Hogwarts for people who aren't sneaking out every night under an invisibility cloak. <laughs> like Seamus Finnegan or like Dean Thomas. They're so ordinary. Mm-hmm. And when, I mean, they become extraordinary because they go through the, you know, the DA. But uh, right. I also sort of wonder, like, Harry's sort of celebrity status is, he's a celebrity, but no one really even knows what he does because his real acts are so secretive. Right. And, you know, I like how you just brought up um, Dumbledore and how he's kind of Harry's advocate and, and everything. But in thinking of him as a mentor and thinking of the relationship he had with Harry as a mentoring relationship, um, it's not exactly the, the greatest one. Or it's, it's not mentoring in in the sense that all I'm going to do is be here to, to help you. But I think one of the characters said it's like you raised a pig for slaughter when in reference I, to... I believe that was Severus Snape and Deathly Hallows. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know if that's in the I book. I know it's in the movie. But. Yeah, it's definitely in the movie. The book, I'm not so sure. But yeah. I feel like it would be in the book because it happens in the Pensieve scene at the end. Mm. Well, the thing is, is though, like, who can, who can Harry trust, and who can, who can I would he... say the mentor that Harry has of all of his mentors, you know, Hagrid, Lupin, Sirius, Dumbledore. I would say the one that is probably the most selfless as a mentor would be Remus Lupin, hmm. because he never really had any back, like, any agenda at the back of his mind of advancing Harry. Dumbledore had to get Harry to die because he was a horcrux. Sirius wants to live through Harry. I mean, maybe Hagrid is a mentor who doesn't really think of anything else besides Mm. Harry's own well-being. Maybe, but it's just he's not as involved in... Exactly. He's sort of... I wouldn't say he's unimportant, but he's not directly related to the Order. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though I guess technically he is a member of it. Yeah, but I I think what, what we're trying to say is that when it comes to these people in in Harry's life, you know, even McGonagall could be considered a mentor to Harry, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't actually think of how much time they spend one-on-one. Um, they both but, had an implied relationship, I think. Yeah. There are a couple of times where she advises him. Whether he follows her advice or not, you know, he does, she does provide him with some guidance. Mm-hmm. Especially in Order of the Phoenix, which I'll bring up again because I'm reading it. <laughs> but every time he gets in trouble with Dolores Umbridge, McGonagall will be like, McGonagall will say, Harry, don't lose your temper in front of her because it's dangerous for you to do so. Right. And the more you do it, the more in trouble you'll get. Just you know, keep quiet and keep your head down. And he doesn't listen to her ever. <laughs> <laughs> but McGonagall is, you know, described as being this very stern woman who's. Uh, you know, just like Hermione, or just Hermione is described as being like her. Um, yeah. Just McGonagall is this. And Molly Weasley, too. Those three women have shared a lot in common. Which is something that we want to, we, we definitely want to delve deeply into and how. Well, what, Monica and I are both feminists. 
So. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm a gender liberationist. <laughs> so, yeah, um. gender liberation, liberationist. <laughs> I guess that's a more appropriate term. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting a revolution. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, being a gender liberationist or feminist, you know, to, to a certain extent, I think the how female characters are presented and what their and kind of how gender roles are identified in in the series are are really it's it's really um it's a really hot hot topic in my mind. Um, no, in mine also. Yeah, because you know we we touched on this before these light and dark characters and how when it comes to the women in the series it's sort of this you know batshit crazy bellatrix and then this upstanding ever caring you know moral monument yeah like mcgonagall or or then maybe if we wanted to make it into a triangle there's the other end of the ever caring loving mother who's also very fierce yeah. Um. And there's also another point to that, the sort of silly, like, silly girl, kind of. Right, silly, flippant, or um, you know, like the nervous. Jelani's and the Rita Skeeters, yeah. know, the Bottle Sisters, Luna. Sort of um, the materialistic school girl, and, yeah. or the pop culture obsessed. <laughs> Whatever. Um. And I feel like Hermione plays into all of those at once, which is why I think she's a, she's a very three-dimensional character in that she's not, you know, a total monument of strength like McGonagall. She's not a fierce mother like Molly Weasley. She's not, I should say, she's not just either of those things. She's not just a silly schoolgirl obsessed with Lockhart, or she's not just sort of like loopy Luna type, because she does have her Luna moments when how is that a Luna moment? Only, well, from what I understand of her relationship with the house elves is that she's sort of projecting her own thoughts and her own ideologies onto them. You know, she mm. believes that they should all be free. And that's something else, that's something that no one else believes in, which I think... I can sort of relate that to Luna and how she believes all these things that nobody else believes in or cares about or even think exists. Mm-hmm. You know, like the house elves' need for freedom is something that probably doesn't even exist, at least not in the way that, you know, J.K. Rowling is writing this magical world. I mean, everyone from, like, Ron to Sirius to Lupin to the, Weas- to the other Weasleys, they all are not really for this. Organization, maybe Lupin so much because he understands being ostracized. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> well, it's, but, it's. I like that you just brought up the house elves. Yeah. Uh, because one of the things we wanted to talk about is racism in in the wizarding world and how you know how it's identified and what you know, how the characters react to it. I mean, there's a very obvious one between the pure bloods and the mud bloods. But then... Watch your language, jeez. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> pure bloods and the... Half bloods. And the muggle borns. <laughs> the muggle borns. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> but the... You know, <laughs> wow, lost my... Um, anyways... So there, there's that obvious one which we've taught, which we've, which is explained to us, and we get that it's wrong to to judge people based on their, um, you know, family hereditary, you know. But the racism with like the house elves. Right, and with the other magical creatures, and that's not something that I think we ever get any resolution from in in the series. We never get. I would say the conclusion of the house elves subplot is that they're happy being, maybe not happy, but they're just, it's like in their DNA to like serve others and be enslaved. But that doesn't. Which, it's just that that's so. It just makes it <laughs> seem like they're not smart enough to know that they should be free, and I feel like those are sentiments that were felt in every country that had slavery. You know, for for years and what years. What the house elves remind me of. 
Gone with the Wind and the whole happy slave stereotype that Hollywood went through in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, before the civil rights movement, really, is that there was really slave characters who are just happy to be servants, happy to not have pay, to not have any pay. They were just happy to serve and, like, uh, you know, they were, um, they were on good terms with their masters, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it was shown that it was in their nature to be docile and to serve. And I don't, yeah, and I think that's exactly how so many characters in the series see their house elves, even if they do treat them well, for example, you know, Dumbledore does treat the house elves well. Yeah. It does, but it still makes it seem like he doesn't think that they're capable of being independent and capable exactly. of, of having their own convictions and, and life. It, it's just, it's very, um, I'll have to do some more, you know, we'll have to talk about this a bit more because I think we could have some serious, some serious chats about it. <laughs> No, for sure. And it's not, it's not something that we've, that I think either one of us has really um, explored um, before. No, definitely not. And, you know, just in, in the wizarding world, it doesn't seem that ethnic race plays as much of a, a much of a role as, as, you know, your bloodline or, you know, what kind of yeah, magical I, creature I you are. I thought but, of that. But then I can't remember any black Death Eaters. But I wonder if that's just casting choices or if that's intentional. And I, I think that the films are very valuable in, in just me being, you know, involved in the fandom and me being a Harry Potter fan. I completely fan. agree. I mean, I love, I mean, you and I both love the films a lot, and we watch them all the time. We watch them all the time. I mean, every time they're on ABC Family, it takes us a day and a half to get through one. So, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. we are, <laughs> ABC Family, Harry Potter Weekend, Harry Potter Six Day Weekend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it does. It takes, like, sometimes it takes six hours to get through a movie. For yeah, because the movies themselves are so long, but then they take a lot of commercial breaks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One thing I want to ask you is, what would you say is your favorite of the eight films? Oh my gosh! Well, <laughs> I I really like I really like Prisoner of Azkaban, and yeah. I think you and I are the minority in that because it's pretty much been like officially stated that it's the worst. <laughs> it's like the worst film. Well, maybe Goblet of Fire is the worst Harry Potter film. I, well, but, for me, the worst one is Sorcerer's Stone. See, but. exactly, because it's too literal. It doesn't offer anything new and exciting. That Which is exactly... I, I, so the reason why I love Prison of Azkaban is because I agree with you that it's maybe, it's probably my favorite or, like, top three. But uh, the reason why I like it so much is because it dramatically changes the tone. Well, the book did this also, but it changes the tone from the sort of lighthearted, like, fantasy books about children... To, I mean, even though Chamber of Secrets, because we've discussed how horrifying it is, it's still much, it's very much about children. Mm-hmm. But when they turn to the third year, they're 13, and they're dealing with, I mean, there's like a little threat out there for Harry, not just Voldemort in the abstract of, you know, behind Quirrell's head or, you know, the memory in the diary. It's like an actual threat with a serious black. And the movie, I think, really takes an interesting turn because it's not so much a literal you know, point-and-shoot adaptation of the first of the books, but it offers a very imaginative and artistic look to it. It's very gloomy and moody and dark, but with, like, hints of, like, wonderment here and there, which adds... It's, it's very mysterious and, and beautiful, I think, which is why and, I love it so much. And it does... I mean, one of the great themes of that book is time. Right, yeah. time is, is brought up numerous times. And the movie does a great a great way of showing that. They put this huge clock, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean obviously. Yeah. I think numerous times in the in the score you can hear kind of this ticking sound. Exactly. Um, at, yeah. at various moments. It's very I think it's it's wonderfully done. It's um, adding another dimension 
to the written word, I think it, I think it, it can only, it, it's only been benefiting. <laughs> um, I know obviously there's a lot of terrible book to film adaptions out there for various, yeah. for various other um, series and, and novels, but with the, with the Potter series, they've taken such care and, and have had so much attention put in that it doesn't hurt that seven of the eight movies were scripted by the same man steve close right and i think he took a break for order of the phoenix if i remember correctly okay uh, uh, so it does there's i mean there's just i feel like each film is sort of united by this one man's voice i mean even order of the phoenix doesn't feel too different uh, without him as but without him as a screenwriter, but mm -hmm. each film I think really does a good job of cutting things that may not be completely necessary to show or tell within a span of two to two and a half hours. I mean, if you think about it, you know, one person once told me that they hated Half Blood Prince because the actual plotline of the Half Blood Prince is so minor compared to, you know, Ron and Lavender's little love affair. <laughs> right, or, right. <laughs> and I remember saying that that actual plotline of Harry using the book many times, it, it's not that important where you need to show it so many times because it really has no actual bearing to the main plot of, you know, finding out who Voldemort really is. And, you know, what I, you know I mean, it is I, important, but at the same time, how much they do, how much they show of it in the actual movie is enough for me to get the idea of this, like, magical book. And then when it's revealed to be Snape, I think it comes at a really interesting moment because it's, like, right after Snape kills Dumbledore. And then Harry finds out that the one person he's been relying on for the entire year mm -hmm. is, is the person he distrusts the most right. now. And I think that's shown very well in the film. Yeah. And, but, but I think what... Um, what might be what's missing from from the Half Blood Prince is is a lot of the um, the upheaval in in sort of the political climate of of the the Wizarding world. Yeah. And that's you know I think people think that that's you know that should have taken much more precedence and, and been shown quite yeah a, you know what now that i think more. about it they don't ever show cornelius fudge stepping down from his post yeah yeah you, you or miss... getting fired or you know voted out right because right. rufus scrim scrimjow i think is yeah i don't know how to pronounce it he just sort of appears in deathly hallows yeah and there's no explanation <laughs> <laughs> no explanation whatsoever. doesn't the hapa pins actually but... start with him visiting the like British Prime Minister. In the book, yeah, that's yeah. how it starts. The, the movie the starts end. with the that bridge being torn apart by Yeah, you know I've been to that bridge in London. Oh, look at you, Mr. Fancy. Fancy man. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> I was sitting on the plane next to um, this this woman that had been to Scotland yeah. and you know, I was telling her about how I'm a big Harry Potter fan. You know, we, we both are. And she said how she went to this, the cafe in Edinburgh that that Joe, you know, either visited or started writing in or, or something. And in the back yeah. window, you can see this castle on a cliff and how when you look out the window, you just think immediately, oh, that's Hogwarts. There it is. Like, I just, I just oh found God, it. Oh, my God, that's awesome. So we have to go there. We'll Maybe we can do like a, a live we'll do a live broadcast from, from Scotland. <laughs> that, that's when we get that's when we get a lot of listeners and followers. Yeah. yeah. So like in the year. <laughs> so like <laughs> after this week. Oh, but <laughs> so well, I think we we shared a lot of a lot of our thoughts, a lot of things that that we find interesting, and we'll be offering a lot more. Uh, a lot more heated. Well, I don't know if heated because we try to maintain calm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a lot of more, you know, uh, excitement. Yeah, 
excited, maybe. Yeah. More, more in-depth, too. Right, right. In-depth in is, is what we want to do. We want to, you know, we, we don't think we're the only ones who think about Potter this much. At least we hope not. Um, no, I'm pretty sure that we are not the only ones. Right, and, and a little bit about our name, Coffee Talk. <laughs> it's Godric's, Godric's Hollow Coffee Talk, if, if we want to. <laughs> If we want to say it like that, or I mean, because <laughs> we're muggles, because we're muggles and we're American, and <laughs> I drink I drink a decent amount of coffee. I don't think I drink anything too too. I, I actually don't odd. drink. I know. I, 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 I know. To drink coffee. Yeah, I know. You don't drink. You don't drink. I don't think you do because um, we've never talked about that before. We yeah. never talked about your coffee drinking habits before. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> But um, if you haven't seen the SNL skit for Coffee Talk, please go out and watch it. It's available on YouTube and Hulu. And so that's where our name comes from. That's where our name comes from because and Gadgetella, obviously, because that's the that's o- that's an obvious choice. But it's where it all began. It's where <laughs> it's where we're starting. So um, we hope to share with you many more interesting. Conversations. Yes, stay tuned. Yes, stay tuned, and <laughs> we'll be sending you a port key. To, uh, <laughs> or to a howler, if, ne- if necessary. Or a what? <laughs> or a howler. Oh, or a howler. Yes, you don't <laughs> listen to us. You will be receiving those. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>